Hi, I'm Grace Savage. I'm the youth pastor here at Trevecca Community Church, and we are so grateful that you're joining us today as we dive into God's Word. Each week, we'll be streaming our service live just for you. We're so grateful that you've decided to join us as we grow together. Service is over. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. My beloved, I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche for to be the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask also my Lord, loyal companion, help these women for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel together with Clement with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with, th with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As for the things that you have learned and received and heard and noticed in me, do them, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, great scripture reading. That was awesome. Amen. You are God's good work. You are God's good work. You don't have to work in order to earn God's favor. You are the good work that God is doing in the world. But you know what's even harder than finding good work? We've been talking in this series about good work, and, and it can be difficult to really have work that is good work, not just more work or harder work. As hard as it can be to identify good work, it is even harder sometimes to find good people to do good work. Whether you are a boomer who believes in the four temperaments, or a strengths finder Gen Xer, or an Enneagram-loving millennial, or an astrology-reading Gen Zer, uh, it's different ways that any, every generation basically has, has come up with to describe why it is so hard for people to get along with each other, right? Like basically all of these personality tests that we take, uh, all of the thought that we've put into what makes us tick, so much of it has to do with understanding why it's so hard for us to get along, why that is so hard to do good work together. My earliest jobs were in restaurants. Um, I don't know about you, but that was where I had my earliest job hosting and serving in restaurants. And I've worked in three different restaurants in two different states. And I enjoy the work of food service, mostly because I really love food. Uh, it's a fun, kind of fast-paced environment, and then you get free or half-priced food to go home with at the end of the night, which is a real good deal. But what I've discovered in working in these different restaurants in different places, some were like pizza restaurants and other fine dining restaurants, that really what makes the difference are the people that you work with. Whether or not you will go home and feel like, ah, oh, that was good work, had so much to do 
with the people with whom you are doing the work. And that can be a real challenge sometimes. You need people in order for work to be good, but it can be hard to work with good people. One of the restaurants I worked with in, was in Chicago, Illinois. And it was a fine dining restaurant in Chicago. It was my first time working in a fine dining restaurant. And everything out in the restaurant was absolutely beautiful, like white linen tablecloths and crystal glasses and beautiful silverware. But back in the kitchen, it was nuts. There was this restaurant owner and head chef who made Gordon Ramsay look like a teddy bear. He was, he was a crazy man, and any time you got something wrong, he would scream and curse and throw things. He was very frequently known to fire people on the spot, like in the middle of a great big dinner rush where we are slammed and things are busy and you've got to get stuff done. If a line cook wasn't doing what they were supposed to do, he would just say, get out of here. I never want to see you again. And the cook would leave, and we would all wonder who's going to do the line cooking. And well, the owner would step back there and do the line cooking himself. And sometimes it felt like he was serving up more insults than dishes, but sometimes we just made it through the night. It was a wild environment, and every week I walked to work, I was filled with anxiety about having to work with this man. And most of the time, it did not feel like good work. We've been describing good work in this series. Uh, good, the description of good we, we have is, is good that is ordered toward God's life-giving purposes, not just what you might call good or what I might call good or a relative sort of what it, whatever is good for you is good, but things that are ordered toward God's life-giving purposes. And then when we're talking about work, we're not just talking about your job or occupation or who signs the paychecks. We're talking about the practices, tasks, and deeds that make up a life. So good work or when our practices, tasks, and deeds are all ordered toward God's life-giving purposes. And working with good people is a big part of what makes work good. What makes work, like the practices and tasks and deeds of your life, are ordered towards life-giving purposes and not life-sucking purposes, right? Uh, having good people to work with is a big part of what makes that happen. And so uh, take, for instance, Bible scholars. Did you know that Bible scholars who do good, important work, I mean, Bible scholarship is good, important work. Did you know that Bible scholars cannot even agree on whether or not the two women named in this passage that Callan read for us, Euodia and Syntyche, did a great job, those are hard names, but whether or not these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, whether or not they were in disagreement. Like, I, I love this, that Bible commentators cannot agree on whether or not they disagreed. Isn't that just classic? That just feels so appropriate. Now, most scholars would say that, of course, these women who Paul is urging, imploring, begging to be of the same mind, uh, that, that these two women must be at each other's throats, right? Like there must be some way that their mind is divided, that they are working at odds against each other. And, and so for most Bible scholarship, that's almost sort of assumed and taken for granted that they're in a disagreement and that that disagreement is disrupting the peace of the church. I think there's a really good case to be made there. But I discovered this last week that there are others who would say that there's nothing really conclusive in this letter to the Philippians itself that absolutely 100% says that these women were fighting. 
Because when he talks about their struggle, he's saying that they have struggled or they have labored. Basically talking about the kind of struggle, that the, the work that they would do on behalf of the church. And he's asking them to have the same mind in the same way that is in Philippians chapter two, he urged the whole church to have the mind of Christ. And, and so some Bible scholars would say that we ought not just assume that these women are fighting. Now, if Paul is naming them by name, they probably have a leadership role in the church. And so it would make sense for Paul to encourage leaders to have the same mind as Christ and to set an example for the congregation, then to ask the congregation to work alongside these women as they lead and serve the church. Well, I really puzzled over that. I really puzzled over that this week. I don't, I mean, Micaiah, which do you think it is? Do you think that they're at odds or do you think that they're just leading the church and setting an example? I don't know either. And I'm gonna be honest, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. You're just so smart, that's what it is. I'm hoping that you have the answers. Because if I'm being really honest, I am not sure that I can say with 100% certainty, mostly because I didn't live in first century Palestine. I can't say with 100% certainty but the irony is that we can't even agree on whether or not these women disagree. And as I puzzled over these two different possibilities, uh, whether or not these are quarreling women or, or folks that are leading in Christ-likeness, I felt like I needed to have the answer. Like I needed to come with to you today knowing exactly which of these I ought to propose to you. But to be honest, I don't know. To quarrel or not to quarrel, that is the question but I know that working with people is hard. I do know that much. I know that working with people is hard and one way or another, I do think that these two women are encountering some challenges to having the mind of Christ. Because working with people is hard. And I bet that it's just as hard in ancient Philippi, the capital city of Macedonia, as it is today in Nashville, the capital city of Tennessee. I bet it's just as hard. And I wanna have the answer for you because I don't want you to be anxious. I don't want you to be anxious and isn't that what good leaders are supposed to do? We're supposed to have the answers to set the direction so that you won't have to be anxious about anything. You can be at peace. Peace seems to be a pretty key component in good work. Some people thrive in chaos, but for the most part, doing good work is often when we are at peace with the people that we're working with and the tasks that we've been asked to do. When I worked for this crazy man in Chicago that I described, I realized that his crazy tactics were really just the way that he tried to keep order and peace in the restaurant. It wasn't a good way, <laughs> but it was, it was his way. And so while out in the dining room, there seemed to be order and peace and, and every dish was always exactly as it should be and served at just the right time with the right utensils and the fine linens scraped down. While everything out in the restaurant looked like it was at peace, in the back of the house, it was chaos. It was anything but peaceful. Philippi is this capital city of Macedonia a major region in the Roman Empire. And in Philippi, there was a military garrison, which is basically like a guard station, you know, like a military outpost, a guard station there in Philippi that was the outpost for that whole Macedonian region. And so if you were in Philippi, that would have been a really central part of life in Philippi, would have been this guard station. 
And it was there to guard the Macedonian citizens to keep peace. This, this guard station was there to protect them and to keep peace. It, because this was a Roman territory under the rule of Caesar. And Caesar boasted about something called the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. And the Peace of Rome went something like this, that as long as everyone believes that Caesar is the Lord of the earth, and, and as everyone in the region follows that the governor is the Lord of the region, and the father is the Lord of the household, and parents are Lord of the children, and masters are Lord of the slaves, as long as everybody gets in line with this order, which is sometimes called the household codes of ancient Rome, as long as everybody will obey and fall in line with this, well, there will be peace, right? This was Caesar's way of creating something like peace in Rome. Now, I, I consulted with some experts on uh, communicating the complexities of the ancient Roman society with middle schoolers of today. Um, those experts are Cal and Evelyn Gaines, and, and they said that if we were really going to understand the complexity of Roman society, understand it today, that we needed to, to watch a little clip from a middle school history teacher named Mr. Nicky. And so just to understand uh, how ancient Rome works, go ahead and take a look. I hope you can hear all the lyrics. You know, the Roman Empire's growing, got to keep the conquer people from revolting. All of them should know the laws, plebeians and slaves. We'll see them in the forum and say, they're the 12 tables. I'm one who commands, ruling all provinces in my empire. Build aqueducts and say my name's Augustus, it's the Pax Romana. I'm one who commands, ruling all provinces in my empire. Build aqueducts and say my name's Augustus, it's the Pax Romana. <laughs> By the way, uh, if for the rest of the day you walk around humming, it's the Pax Romana, uh, you're welcome, and welcome to my life for the last four days. <laughs> I, I, I love that. It's a, it's a goofy way that a middle school history teacher taught about the Pax Romana, right? That, it, that Caesar rules over all the providence in the empire, and as long as the citizens follow and obey the laws, and there is Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Well, Macedonia was a region in Rome that was already a, a place of really independent thinkers. In fact, the region was known particularly for influential and powerful women. And so it's no coincidence that the church in Philippi begins with women, with Lydia and her group that had met for prayer down by the river. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. And then the book of Acts goes on to tell us that the churches in that region, it says, had no few prominent women. In other words, that the prominent women of this region were key in planting the churches of the Macedonia area. And I can't help but imagine that these women in this region were drawn to a gospel message that declared Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, a gospel that would free them from the oppression of this system that they were living under and Caesar was calling it peace. I can see how these women would be attracted to this gospel that freed them from these kinds of household codes. But to many parts of the world, early Christians looked really chaotic. In fact, early Christians were often accused of being anarchists. And some of the early Christians that were martyred or were killed for their faith was because they were accused of subverting the peace of Rome. Subverting the peace of Rome. 
And, and so you can uh, imagine these early Christians who were accused of being anarchists, they would say that this could not be further from the truth because to claim that Jesus is Lord is not the same as declaring yourself as Lord or that there is no Lord, right? But these early Christians, they probably made people a little nervous. Like I can understand people getting a little nervous around these early Christians and for whatever, and whatever the case, I wouldn't be surprised if these women leading in the church in Philippi made people a little anxious. Strong women tend to have that effect, so I've been told. <laughs> but one way or another, I'm guessing that these women and probably the members of their house churches are tempted to have the mind of Rome in the way that they lead and conduct themselves. The mind of this world, really in the way that they treat each other. That this mind that would say that opposing views cannot exist, that, that the stronger voice has to dominate the weaker, to, to have a mind, a way of thinking, believing, and acting in the world that attempts to maintain peace through subordination, strength, and dominance, like the guard outpost in Philippi. This is a, a guarded mindset where you always have to be guarded against being exploited or taken advantage of. And so Paul urges them, pleads with them to have the same mind, the mind of Christ, so that one doesn't need to dominate the other. And he's pleading with these women and these churches that they lead to work together with the mind of Christ. Has anyone ever worked in a place where you had this guarded mindset where you were constantly looking out for who was trying to manipulate, take advantage, or exploit you. It's exhausting. It's really exhausting to live in an environment and to work in an environment like that. I don't know where you find yourself doing the good work that God's called you to, the deeds, practices, and tasks that make up your life. And maybe it's in an apartment complex or in a neighborhood, in a home. Maybe it's in a workplace that is out in a field somewhere or in an office building. But wherever you find yourself doing good work, for, for some of you, you might work alongside a lot of other Christians who you would expect to have the mind of Christ. And you would hope that they can expect that you have the mind of Christ. Although, working with Christians doesn't always work out like that. But for, for many of you, I imagine that you work alongside a lot of non-Christians, right? People who do not claim to have the mind of Christ, who you can't hold to that standard or expect them to have the mind of Christ. And so what do we do when we work and live in those kinds of environments with people who have no claim to be Christian, who, who you can't expect to have the mind of Christ? Because if you are going to have the mind of Christ, this, this humble mind that is not guarded, that's not worried about who's going to exploit or take advantage of you, and you're working with people who have the mind of the empires of this world, then you're really vulnerable, like, that's a really vulnerable position to be in. Or maybe additionally, you might be one who, throughout this sermon series, has been saying, all right, I, I need to adjust the way that I think about work. We've talked a lot about the American obsession with work and trying to kind of reorient ourselves towards work so that work is not our primary identity. It's not where we find our identity. And maybe that's you and you're trying to adjust your relationship with work to find good work in a world where your coworkers are obsessed with work and are worshiping their work. 
See, if your coworkers are happy to stay on the hamster wheel of life, as long as they keep that wheel turning faster and faster and faster, how are you supposed to feel like you can get off without being left behind? It's really hard to do good work with people, right? It can be really, really hard. I can imagine the anxiety that that would cause. The anxiety that you would feel if you were to really adopt the mind, the mind of Christ. One who, though he was God, did not consider equality with God, not even equality with God, as something to be exploited, or another translation could be taken advantage of, but emptied himself. I mean, if we really adopt that mindset, Remember the word we learned a couple weeks ago, phronane, the, the mind way of thinking, acting, being in the world? If we really adopt that mindset, it makes us awfully vulnerable. What will guard us against exploitation, being dominated, or being taken advantage of? What will guard us? When you are always thinking that surely someone is about to pull a power move on you, that's going to pull the rug out from under you, always looking for the next possible angle with which someone might take advantage of you, pretty soon, that's all you can see. It sort of dominates your thinking and you are constantly on guard, always looking out for who might be the next person to try to take advantage of you. It becomes all you can see, all you can think about. It dominates your mind. So, at least for the church in Philippi, who perhaps has this very guarded mindset. They they live in a town with a guard outpost right there. They probably have a pretty guarded mindset. Paul gives them a list of other things to think on. He gives them a list of other things to think about, to let these things fill up their mind. He gives them a list, tells them to think about things that are true and honorable, pure, just, commendable, He gives them this list of other things to think on, but here's the thing about that list. As it was being read, you might have noticed those sound like all real good things, and they should sound like good things. Whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is commendable, whatever is pleasing, those all sound like really good things, right? Nobody would say, actually, true, I don't think I want to be true, right? They they all sound like really good things to us, in ancient Rome, it would also all sound like really good things. In fact, it would sound like really good things to their non-Christian co-workers, to the people that they worked alongside in the marketplace, to the people that they served alongside. These were commonly used Greek terms to describe what anybody would think about as a citizen of virtue, a, a good person, basically. Basically, it's describing a good person. In fact, there were other words that Paul could have used that were much more uniquely Christian words. But some of the words in that list, pure, true, honor, some of those words, that's the only time you see them anywhere in the Greek New Testament. Because they're not really uniquely Christian words, they're just sort of generic words describing what it is to be a a good Roman citizen. Paul makes this list of words, and then Paul says, you know, whatever is pure, whatever is true, And then Paul says, if any of these is excellent, in order, in other words, he's saying any of these things that anybody that you work alongside, live alongside, would call a good person, if they're actually excellent and praiseworthy, think on these things. 
In other words, he's saying, any of the things that all of your coworkers and neighbors would already call being a good person, well, you're gonna need to have discernment because some of that is good, ordered towards God's life-giving purposes, and some of it is not actually good. Let me give you an example. For example, uh, if there were a, a Christian in Philippi who was to be called out by somebody else, one of their coworkers, as subverting the peace of Rome. If basically somebody could go to the guard station there in Philippi and say, hey, one of my coworkers is following Jesus and they meet in these weird little gatherings and they eat flesh and drink blood. I mean, they're doing some really weird stuff and they're saying that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar is Lord. I really think you ought to do something about that. So one of their coworkers could come and turn them in. Well, guess what? The coworker who turned them in by the standards of the world would be described as being true and honorable and pure and just and commendable and pleasing, right? Like they've done well to the mind of Rome. But with the mind of Christ, we would look at the person who now is probably going to become a martyr who might very well end up laying down their life, we would look at what they had done and say that actually is what is pure, is what is true, what is just and commendable, pleasing. Paul is telling them to focus on the things that are truly good with the mind of Christ. Some of those things might overlap with their coworkers and some will not. And they're going to need to have judgment and discernment to know which is which. What if those of you who work in work environments where you cannot expect your coworkers to work with the mind of Christ, what if you had a discerning eye to be able to distinguish between what your coworkers thought was really good and what was actually good, ordered toward God's life-giving purposes, the life that's given in Christ Jesus? instead of just focusing on what the world calls good or what's good by the standards of the workplace. You see, when we focus our attention on what is truly good and then everything else that is not good, that is out of our control, we bring to God in prayer, that's a really good way to experience the peace of Christ. Now, when I say everything else we bring to God in prayer, Referencing that scripture that do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, bring your request to God. When I say bring it to God in prayer, that does not mean that we just ignore it or we turn a blind eye. It means that we take it to the one who stands with the suffering and exalts the humble who watches out for the least of these. Amen. And when we do that, you know what, we aren't as anxious about what the rest of the world is anxious about. We aren't anxious about being right or being first or being dominant because that's not where goodness lies. When we focus our attention on the things that are truly good and bring everything else that is not good to God in prayer, we don't have to depend on a military outpost to guard us. We will be guarded by Jesus Christ, our hearts and mind with this peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. In fact, peace that surpasses the understanding, the mindset of the rest of the world. 
Because Jesus Christ brings a peace that surpasses the understanding of a, rule, of a world that is ruled by force and authority, a peace that only the Lord can supply. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but as I've been praying about this and reflecting on this passage and, and preparing the sermon today, I just cannot help, I cannot get away from the situation that is unfolding in Israel on the Gaza Strip. And so if, as we've been talking about all of this, if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, okay, but what does this mean for Israel today? So am I. It has been deeply heavy on my heart watching the news that is coming out of the place where our Lord walked. And I am horrified. Horrified by what has happened and by what might happen. It is not good. And we will watch and have watched as world leaders will try to figure out how to broker some kind of peace. That's been happening for as long as I can remember. Brokering some kind of peace that we know will not last until Jesus gets back, but it might last for a little while until it doesn't. Brokering some kind of peace that will probably not always line up with Christ's peace, but maybe in some moments it will. Trying to broker a peace that will be pleasing to the empires of this age. And it seems like people who are not in immediate danger have some really strong opinions about all of this about the role of the U.S. and other world leaders in Israel and Gaza and Palestine and Hamas. And while there is broad agreement that the terror inflicted by Hamas is evil, unthinkable and unacceptable, not pure, not honorable, not true, not just, not commendable, not pleasing, well, we agree on that. There's not a whole lot that anybody else agrees on. I don't have all the answers, once again. I don't have all the answers, and if I'm honest, I have some fear. I don't have all the answers, but if I'm honest, I have some anger. I don't have all the answers, but if I'm being really honest, I have some anxiousness. And so, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I will do my best to have the mind of Christ which is not religious language for saying, not my problem. As the anxiousness of this world and this situation creeps in, I will bring every single evil thing. I will bring every evil part of this to the Lord in prayer, all the stuff that is out of my control. And I will bring my own anger and fear and anxiousness to the Lord in prayer. Not that I will ignore it or tune it out, but bring it to the Lord, the God of all creation who cares about the children of this earth more than I could ever imagine. I will bring it to the Lord in prayer and I will focus my attention on doing good work with the people that God has placed right in front of me right here today doing good work in this place. And I, I will do everything in my strength to do like Paul did, to call on others to focus their energy, to be able to see and discern what is truly good and what is not good and life-giving. I'll bring it to the Lord in prayer and focus my energy on the work that God has given me to do, calling on others to focus on what is truly good and life-giving and Christ-like not just for the power brokers of this world, but for the least of these. Maybe it's not my job to have all the answers. 
but to model the mind of Christ. To model the mind of Christ and to shape and influence the culture of a community of this place so that it is natural for us to have the mind of Christ with one another. So we can come into this place and trust that I can have the mind of Christ and put my guard down because I know that you are my brother and sister and you are not trying to take advantage of me. I can come into this place and I can truly have the mind of Christ and put my guard down because I know that you are my brother and sister and you would never exploit me. I can come into this place and have the mind of Christ, put my guard down because the Holy Spirit is here at work in us, making us into the body of Christ in a way that I cannot do in my own power or ability. I pray today that you might work with the mind of Christ. Let Christ guard your vulnerable heart so you don't have to keep putting up walls. And as you look at the work that God has called you to do, try to discern between what is just what the world calls good and what is really good, shaped like the life of Jesus Christ. Bring about this good work in everything else, everything that is not good, bring it to God in prayer. Keep your focus on the good work that God has called you to do and keep doing the good work that God has called you to do and the peace of Christ will be with you. Today, as we head to a time of prayer, you might know that in every sermon series in this series, of which today draws us to a conclusion, we've been praying for different segments of the workforce. We have prayed for uh, teachers and artists, for business professionals, for all kinds of different sectors of the, of the workforce. And today we want to pray for those who are in skilled labor, for skilled labor who are people that might garden or paint, computer programmers or technicians, plumbers, factory workers, any kind of skilled labor today, we want to be able to pray a blessing over you. If that's you, if that's how you identify the work that God's called you to do, and you'd like to come and even kneel at the altars and find a place for prayer, in just a moment, Pastor Tim's going to come and pray a prayer over you. But maybe today you would like to come and find a place of prayer to pray for the things that feel so very out of our control. Pray for the peace of Israel. Pray for the peace of places like Ukraine and Russia. Pray for the, the things that are out of our control that we know so clearly are not good because they are not shaped like Jesus Christ. But we need to bring it to a God who stands with the suffering and who watches out for the least of these when we're not able to. So if you'd like to come for whatever the reason, whatever the burden is that you are bringing, and ask that God would continue to give you the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ that, that focuses on the things that are truly good and brings everything else to God in prayer. Whatever the everything else is for you today, if you would like to come and bring it, Pastor Tim is gonna come and pray over us. Pray for our skilled laborers, the people who are, are doing good, hard work in places all over this city and for the people that just need to come and bring burdens. So would you come as we pray? If you'd like to come and kneel, kneel here at the altars. You can pray right where you are as Pastor Tim leads us. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to participate on a Sunday morning, we have service in our sanctuary at 10.30 a.m. That service is also streamed to YouTube and is available in a podcast format. If you would like to give online, you're welcome to head to trevecca.church slash give. All of our other church resources are also available on our website. Once again, 
However you choose to engage each week, we are grateful for you and you are loved.